Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 142 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my brother, Andrew. Hello! My friend, Toby. Hey! And my husband, Dylan's the sound recordist. Hey, hello! Did you guys notice how I switched it up? You did. You threw me off. I was taking a sip of my drink. I guess I lose primary spot because I no longer live in LA. Cool. <laughs> how How's the RV situation, Toby? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, right now I'm recording uh, literally covered in paint. Oh, no. Uh, if anyone ever asks you, hey, do you want to try and paint a car yourself? Tell them that they are going to jail because you're taking them there <laughs> for offering you that thing. Um, we had uh, we had a, a paint spraying machine and it exploded everywhere. Oh, I am no. now covered with a paint that is not just paint. Uh, we mixed a hardener in it. So it's extra hard. <laughs> oh, no. What color is it? Oh, it's like an off white. Um, it looks like mayonnaise. So it looks like I just ate like I got real deep into some mayonnaise. Oh, no. <laughs> Anyway, that's how the RV is going. <laughs> how are you guys? Well, that's excellent. Uh, not excellent. I'm sorry. I have to go through that, Toby. Eh, it's all right. We pivoted. We, we did a hard pivot and then we painted it another way. Excellent. Um, I want to thank you, Toby, because I have a little bit of shame thanks to you. Oh, really? She learned it from watching you. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, I would learn the shame from watching Bailey. Well, I was out of town. I, I went ahead to Maine a week before Dylan went there. And when I got back, Dylan was like, oh, yeah, I said goodbye to Toby and Louise, your wife. And they gave us a bunch of books that they were getting rid of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if I had been there, I probably would, would have said no. But I doubt it. I doubt it. You have me in a Bailey mindset. So that's true. I probably would have taken them anyway. So I looked through them and I decided to keep one massive book, which is a Stephen King collection of three novels, The Shining, mm. Salem's Lot, and Carrie, Yeah, which I'm excited for. And if that one gets pulled, I don't know. Like, do I read all three? Unclear. I wouldn't recommend reading all three. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're all three fun, but yeah, that's a good collection. That's like three, um, three top tier ones. Yeah. I've read all of them. They're good. Nice. Well, thank you for that. I believe the precedent we have on the podcast is if that happens, you can try and get a reward oh, if you do yeah. it. Which I failed to get when I had the Robinson Crusoe, Daniel Defoe, Double double Trouble. Well, but with that said, that was one of the worst books you've ever read on the podcast, right? So <laughs> maybe it would have been different. And the second one was The Plague Year, which in retrospect was even before our plague year and a half. That would be weird. Yeah, maybe if you had read it, Andrew, come on. Yeah. Yeah, I would have learned something. God. <laughs> um, well, that sounds like a, you're backing into saying shame. And I actually have a shame this week. Ooh. Uh-oh. Let's hear. How many copies of Carrie did you buy? <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually bought one copy of a book that I bought. I was thinking about it. I bought it for like the most shameful reason, two of the most shameful reasons ever. Okay. One, because I really liked the cover. Mm. And two, because it was blurbed by an author that I like, uh, David Mitchell. You know what? That's, I mean, that's why they have these pretty covers and these pretty blurbs. You were drawn I in. I know, but I don't like, I don't like feeling like the system got me. <laughs> but it totally did. I bought a copy of Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. I got that for similar reasons. It's on my list. Yeah. Well, David Mitchell says it's quote, a thing of dazzling beauty. So come on now. I'm, I'm trying trying not to laugh because Dylan is looking at the two read list and trying to find Hamnet and he hasn't realized that the books are alphabetical by title. <laughs> and he's still... <laughs> 
Well, I'm excited for that one, Toby, whenever it gets pulled for either of us. Yeah, me too. It's going to get pulled right now. <laughs> choosing now. I also bought a book for myself. Oh, so there's more shame. There's well, more here. Well, I mean, is it shame? Because here's the thing. I read it in a night. I read the whole book Uh-oh. in one night. The book is The Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix. Ooh. Dang. So I assume since you read it in a night, it is a, a slapper, as the kids say. <laughs> I loved it. You have to you have to be into slasher movies or at least have seen, you know, I've seen most of the movies they talk about, like all of the characters are final girls. So that is the girl that survives at the end of a horror movie like Halloween or Friday the 13th or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So it's like, imagine if these people were alive and they all met in a support group and then one of them is killed. And then are they <gasps> being targeted or what? But yes, so... I don't know if I talked about buying this before, but I did. Yeah, you did. Well, guess double not shame, though, because I already read it and I love it. And, you know, five stars. And I think if you've seen those movies, you'll appreciate it more. Um, maybe we should do a longer review if one of you guys want to read the book. But I five stars. Oh, highly I'm recommend. Yeah. Ooh. Cool. Speaking of negative shame, Toby. What? When I was going to pick your number, I noticed that you did a huge calling on your list. Yes, I did. Um, <laughs> I did. I, I took the liberty of it not being a physical list. <laughs> I, you know, now that we now that we are sixty five episodes in, I have maybe more of a, a finger on the pulse of what would be a good book to read for the podcast. And I looked <laughs> over my list and I was like, oh boy, a lot of these would be bad episodes. So I just trimmed it. I think you cut it in half almost. Yes. Good job. I just thought Toby spent a huge weekend reading a bunch of books. (laughs) A bunch of like not that great books. Uh, Andrew, do you have any shame to report? Any? Well, thank you for finally asking (laughs) me because yes, I do. (laughs) I have some shame and it's a big boy. Uh Uh-oh. It's a big guy. Um, No, it is another sort of doorstop historical book. We're talking nonfiction. We're talking 800 plus pages. We're talking about the Pulitzer Prize winner from the big guy himself, David W. Bright, professor of Yale, Frederick Douglass, prophet of freedom. Oh, Heck yeah. yeah. No, it's it's supposed to be really good. I really like David Blight. Um, I've never actually read his work before, but he did. Do you guys, did you guys ever use iTunes U? No. I always intended to and said that I would and never did. I told people I did. <laughs> so for context, for if, if folks haven't used it before, I don't know if it's still around, but it's uh, a collection of like lecture series that uh, professors consented to have their stuff recorded and they put it up like, like podcasts. It was the first thing I got into pre even getting into podcasts mm-hmm. and he has an excellent series that's his, like 200 levels lecture series on the civil war that he does at yale really compelling guy really great dude i actually emailed with him for a little bit nice guy mm. really excited to read this book don't know if it's a great candidate for the true to read list as it is you know an 800 plus page nonfiction book but we'll see if it gets pulled it gets pulled if not maybe i'll just dip into it on my own time well should we read the book or should we wait for the lin-manuel miranda musical to come out <laughs> i was gonna to say I love it when people have super villain names but then are really nice people. <laughs> Professor Blight. Come on now. Yeah, Professor Blight is pretty rough. It sounds like he's going to do some necrotic damage to you. <laughs> yeah, when you were emailing, did you take 10d6 of necrotic damage? I did. <laughs> Guys, are we beyond hope? Are we too nerdy at this point? <laughs> I think so. I think I think it's over for us. Um, I finished another jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, God. 
No, I won't go into that. As Andrew and I are attempting to bail out the boat, Bailey just takes out a <laughs> shotgun and blows a hole in the bottom. Of it. it was a really cool puzzle. It was based on all the mythical beasts of the no. world. So there you go. Ooh, ooh, actually, I do have something eager to report hot off the presses. Yes. I'm in the basement of the of the house and I'm seeing George the cat use the cat tree for the first time. He may have done it, Whoa. but this is the first time I've seen him do it. It's a new cat tree. History is being made and you are witnessing it. We are all witnesses. Go Cleveland Cavaliers. <laughs> That is very impressive. Go, George. Maybe he's been inspired by the Olympics and he can do it. Yeah. Long jump, high jump. Now he's sort of menacingly staring at me from the top of the couch. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, it's that time, guys. It's time for Toby to review a book off his shelf, off his amorphous digital shelf. Toby, you had a book chosen at random this week. What book was it? I had the book Money by Martin Amos. Money, money, money. <laughs> Money. Money. We can't afford that. All right. So I'll try and do a little log line here. John Self is a man addicted to the 20th century. And in Martin Amos's spectacularly offensive novel Money, he bounces back and forth between London and New York, drowning in drink, pornography, and rivers of cash. Always flush, but never happy. Ooh, always flush, but never happy. That would be a good tagline. Yeah. Well, you also omitted the subtitle of the book. Yes. Which puts a different spin on it. Yeah. So this is also published as money colon a suicide note. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I've seen almost all the editions that I've seen do not actually have that on the cover. And I think that the title is much better as money. So that's what I said. Um, so I'm gonna give you a little bit of a plot summary or like, um, so John Self, the main character, it's in first person. We are deep within his mind. And in fact, it almost might be you know, what would you call it? It's not quite first person because he is speaking in the first person, but it's almost like he's telling you the story and he addresses this, the reader directly quite a bit. Is there a term for that? Huh. Anyway, it's like that. Um, so we are deep in his mind. Um, he is a successful commercial director from the UK. And as we join him, he's been given his opportunity to make his first feature film. Um, so that is why he's kind of constantly going back and forth between London and New York is because he is kind of constantly arranging uh, the business business of this movie as it gets made. Um, helping him get it done is his super slick California money man, Fielding Goodney. There's also a bunch of like outlandish characters, um, actors, and other people. Um, one of my favorite things about Martin Amos is his consideration of names. So we have the ultra-conservative Christian character, Spunk Davis, um, and the self-obsessed uh, aging star, Lauren Guyland. They're the two guys who are constantly fighting each other for, you know, what their role will be in the film. And basically everybody in the film is self-obsessed and, and wants to create problems for John Self. John Self is also haunted by his obsession with the money-hungry woman that he can't get enough of, Selena Street. And he kind of is constantly pining for her in the beginning of the book. And then later on, we also have another somewhat love interest um, who is his intellectual superior, Martina Twain, um, who is a kind of New York intellectual. She went to film school with him and she seems to promise a kind of more wholesome life for John. Because as the book begins, John's in bad shape um, and he's a bad person, like an extreme extremely bad person. I've heard Amos's work referred to as uh, by a contemporary critic called the new unpleasantness. Hmm. Um, and I would definitely agree with that characterization. Um, you are deep in John Self's mind and John Self is horrendous. 
Um, he is racist. He is misogynist. He is a inveterate drunk and drug addict. He is deep into every horrible vice that you can possibly think of. Um, and he has no faith in anyone or even himself. Sounds like a fun guy. <laughs> it's Well, the thing is, is that he's awful and very hateable, but he's also, because he's written by Martin Amos, he's very, very funny. Um, and his observations of the world are extremely funny. Some of them are, you know, Amos really gets you because he ping pongs back and forth between a really deep, interesting insight. And then he will kind of slap you upside of the head with something awful that John Self thinks about women or thinks about people in general. A lot of really, really misogynistic stuff, though, um, which I think is is partially the point that he's trying to make. I've also read uh, The Information, uh, which is the other book by Amos that I've read, and it's very similar to this, where we are given a kind of portrait of a middle-aged man who is a bad person. And Amos just seems very, very interested in kind of interrogating who these men are and why maybe they are so foul and vile. Okay. An important perspective. Yeah. Um, so I, I was going to go elves and orcs, but it's really difficult with this because they are so blended mm. with my experience of this book, right? So it, it's very... At first, when you start reading the book, like John Self is so simultaneously charming and horrible that it makes you feel terrible because you're like, man, I, I think that maybe Martin Amos thinks this way. Like maybe he's just having fun right writing this person. But then there's a plot device that happens in this book and no other book by Martin Amos, which kind of maybe tries to clear Amos's name, which is that Martin Amos includes himself in the book. Hmm. Uh, John Self goes back and forth and things with his script kind of fall apart and he needs to find a new writer and he runs across this guy named Martin Amos. <laughs> and uh, Martin Amos is a character in the book and he clearly does not approve of John Self's lifestyle or any of his opinions, but he is sympathetic towards him. He sees him as kind of a sad figure, which he really is. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and it really is hard, especially I think, you know, you wonder like how much sympathy does this person deserve? But at the same time, he's so obviously miserable and, and terrible that you do feel bad for him. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's all twisted up. And I think Honestly, I enjoy it in the end because of, of how twisted up it makes me feel. Yeah, I had really, as you started to describe it, I was like, I, I don't know if I'm into this book. But then when you talked about that plot device, I've never read anything like that. That makes me interested. It's extremely, extremely well done, mm -hmm. um, it, especially to the point where it's not a spoiler to say that, you know, things go on and Martin Amos and John Self have these conversations where Martin Amos is talking about the things that he's doing to his characters in the screenplay that he's writing for John Self. Mm -hmm. And he basically is saying, I feel bad because I'm subjecting these characters that I'm very close to, to horrific things. But in truth, he is speaking to John Self, the character that he's created for this novel, and he really is putting John Self through like absolute hell. Mm -hmm. Like he's really making him experience the worst, I mean, some of the worst things that you can experience. So I don't know, that, that aspect of the, of the novel really works for me. I think for a lot of people, it's a big turnoff. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a famous story about um, his father is Kingsley Amos, um, who was a very successful author in his own day in the, the 30s. Uh, and apparently um, Martin showed this, you know, first draft to Kingsley. And when Kingsley got to the part where Martin comes on screen, he threw the draft across the room and refused to keep reading. <laughs> 
son, what are you doing? Fair. <laughs> Would you like the exact quote? Yes. Yes, please. Uh, this is previewing the facts, but apparently this is uh, Martin Amos's uh, recollection of it. I can point out the exact place where he stopped and sent money twirling through the air. That's when the character named Martin Amos comes in. <laughs> Breaking the rules, buggering about with the reader, drawing attention to himself. Kingsley complained. Yeah, not a lot of love lost, I think, between those two. Uh, although I think maybe Andrew can give us more on the facts. Two stars for my son. <laughs> yeah, I think he would have rated it one star. So uh, an elf, you know, to kind of keep going with this incredibly muddled review, an elf is his writing style. I mean, he, this novel really, it has a plot and sure you kind of care, but you're really dragged along by his prose. So I have a quote here from the prologue and it has to do um, with the subtitle, A Suicide Note. So the quote is, you never can tell though with suicide notes, can you? In the planetary aggregate of all life, there are many more suicide notes than there are suicides. They're like poems in that respect, suicide notes. Nearly everyone tries their hand at them sometime, with or without the talent. We all write them in our heads. Usually the note is the thing. You complete it and then resume your time travel. It is the note and not the life that is cancelled out. Or the other way around. Or death. You never can tell though, can you, with suicide notes. So that is, you know, just a, a small example of the kind of pretty dark, pretty wry humor um, mm-hmm. and observation that, that goes on with this stuff. Um, so overall, very, very, very much enjoyed it. I very much struggled with parts of it. There are parts of it I would really not recommend it to anyone who does not have a strong stomach um, because it gets really disgusting and depraved. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my one explicit orc is that, you know, by including himself in the story and by doing various other things, Amos seems to be telling us, hey, I don't really think this way. Like, this is my character that I've created, blah, 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 blah. But there's just sometimes and then kind of with maybe some of his other behavior that I've heard about, you know, here and there, I haven't done too much explicit research. I do wonder if he isn't a little misogynist at the very least. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't know. I don't want to cast aspersions when I don't know all the facts, but sometimes it's just like, uh, how easily does this kind of thinking come to this person? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, it makes me feel uneasy uh, at times. And there are times when I wonder if it's gratuitous. So, you know, overall, it would be a five-star book. But just that little bit of unease. And then maybe a little dragging in the middle brings it down to four stars. Okay. It's still really good. Yeah. Also, it's called First Person Direct Address. Thank you, Dylan. There we go. Well, that's awesome. Okay. So that is Money by Martin Amos, four stars. Andrew, do you have any facts on Martin Amos? Now I'm interested. No. Okay, great. Cool. Moving on. Okay. Well, short episode today, guys. (laughs) No, I do. I have some facts. I'm going to try to go through them pretty quick. I accidentally wrote a freaking book report about this Amos guy. All right. So Martin Lewis Amos was born on August 25th, 1949 in Oxford in the United Kingdom. I'm going to quote directly from the Wikipedia here. Amos was born in Oxford, England. His father, noted English novelist Sir Kingsley Amos, was the son of a mustard manufacturer's clerk from Clapham, London. Wow. Hmm. Didn't know that I needed to know that mustard runs deep in the the veins of the Amos family. (laughs) I think that's crucial, crucial information. Yeah. He was well-educated as a child, though one headmaster described him as, quote, unusually unpromising. (laughs) (laughs) Youch. Yeah, burn. Burn notice, season three. (laughs) Uh, And he also spent some time in America when he was younger, uh, when his father's success as a writer uh, brought his family to Princeton for a time uh, where he where Kingsley lectured. He also appeared as a child actor in a film called A High Wind in Jamaica uh, Mm. alongside Anthony Quinn and James Coburn. 
Cool. Yeah. Uh, despite only reading comic books until his stepmother convinced him to try Jane Austen, Amos developed a love for literature and went on to attend Oxford and receive some academic acclaim there. How many times do you think he sent hate notes to that teacher that said he was unpromising? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think he probably thanked him for the quote oh, because yeah. it's a great quote. <laughs> That's a cool quote. His first novel was called The Rachel Papers, and it was published in 1973. He published two more novels in the 70s called Dead Babies and Success. And he hadn't like fully transitioned into being a full-time writer at that point, but they got mixed degrees of like, if not success, like some buzz going for him. But the 80s, oh, the 80s were big for Marty. <laughs> now, he published two of his best-known novels, um, London Fields and Money, which came out in 1984, um, and that announced him onto the literary scene. Our first moment of controversy here for Mr. Amos, uh, there's a controversy when London Fields was left off the long list for the Man Booker Prize, when two of the five judges blocked its inclusion due to what they viewed as Amos's treating his female characters poorly habitually. Interesting. Yeah. So I just, it, it, I see your point, Toby. And it, yeah, I had the same thought, re, like doing this research. I'm like, I don't know. It seems like he's trying to dodge a lot of this criticism, but it also seems to come up a lot. And if they were saying that in the 80s, that doesn't bode well. It also doesn't help that the headmaster was also on the jury. <laughs> <laughs> it was an unpromising novel from an unusually. I'm definitely done on this. <laughs> this is particularly misogynistic. I'm 200 years old and I'm still <laughs> ruining your life, Mark. Um, he continued to write regularly in the 90s, publishing a lot of work, um, including Time's Arrow, um, The Information, the book that you read in Night Train. Since the turn of the millennium, though, he's published pretty regularly, but with sort of dwindling acclaim to each of his work. Um, some of his nonfiction has been well received. He sort of pivoted to writing fewer novels and doing some more journalism, some, some nonfiction, a biography that got good reviews when it came out. But to name a few of those titles, they're called Experience, Yellow Dog, House of Meetings, The Pregnant Widow, and most recently he came out with a new novel in 2020 called Inside Story. Hmm. So he's been writing a lot, but um, the ones people point to as like the best examples of his writing are from earlier in his career. Hmm. Um, Amos spent two years living in Uruguay to uh, escape the London literary scene. Um, and as far as I can tell, he now resides in Brooklyn. He's been married twice and has been married to fellow writer Isabel Fonseca since 1996, and he has five children. Hmm. Just to double back on some of the things that we talked about in the uh, review in terms of him being a somewhat controversial figure, uh, he's no stranger to controversy. Um, and in 2006, his comments on Islam and terrorism, which failed to distinguish the religion as a whole from extremists, uh, were widely condemned and criticized. It started a feud that he has with the Guardian newspaper, our friend, which seems to continue to this day. He writes op-eds for a, a different paper. The Guardian comes out and trashes him down. It's a whole sort of Ouroboros. Mm. Um, he is a self-described agnostic and in the past has been not too shy to comment on the political events of the world, though I cannot figure out what his true political opinions are because he basically seems to hate everyone. Um, yeah. And by everyone, I mean every side of the political spectrum. Yeah, I, from the little I know, he seems to be kind of an adult version of those like 14-year-old kids who are like, oh, so you have an opinion, eh? Well, here's what's wrong with it, no matter what you say. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I can't say I liked what I learned about Amos. He seems kind of just like a grumpy 
happy guy who likes to hear himself talk. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Sounds about right. I like the mustard part. Yeah. Yeah, the mustard part was cool. <laughs> um, but hey, I, I'm glad I, I'm glad you liked the book. And I think it obviously has a lot of talent. It's just I kept finding more and more examples of him like just being unnecessarily mean to people. And it made me feel a little turned off. That's fair. Uh, but I don't want to yuck your yum. I mean, t- I feel exactly the same as you do. <laughs> I just I happen to have read the information before I knew anything about him. And I was like, this is a fantastic book with some troubling things. Let's find out what this. Go- oh, no. Mm. And that's what I got. My last fact was the uh, was the quote about Kingsley, which we brought in earlier. Great. Well, excellent facts, Andrew. Excellent facts, Andrew. Thank you. My facts on Samantha Irby are a little bit thinner because there is less written about her. <laughs> Speaking of facts about Samantha Irby, Bailey, you read book? <laughs> yes, I read book. I read oh. I read two books this week. Oh, wow. No, thank you. <laughs> I was actually proud because I have th- her three books, well, her main three books on my to read list. And I restrained myself and only read two out of three. You know, last year, Bailey might have forced myself to read all three, but I only read two. So I could read Final Girl Support Group. So the one that was officially chosen um, was her second book, her most well-known book, which is called We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. And it came out, I'm not sure what year. came out in 2017. Oh, okay. So um, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life and um, her other two books um, are all collections of Samantha Irby's blog posts. Um, And she, it's okay. Uh, We have a clean podcast here, but she uses a lot of curse words. So we're just going to use like first letters. So her blog is called Bees Gotta Eat. Oh, so it's about like insects that make honey? Yeah, totally. And so uh, this book, the essays um, mostly concern her job. She works as a um, like a receptionist at an animal hospital. Um, so she talks a lot about what that's like um, and what it feels like to, you know, not have this fancy career, but to be really smart and to kind of like being in this job that's not going to go anywhere. And then it mm. also talks about um, her relationships, both with men and women, um, ultimately talking about her meeting her wife, who she calls Mavis in the book. I don't think that her real name is Mavis. It is not. There you go. Okay. And um, it talks about her cat, Helen Keller, who it, that was the name that the cat came with um, at the animal hospital. <laughs> um, and also about, you know, her, she has a lot of medical issues, including IBS, which she talks about a lot. Uh, Crohn's disease, again, talks about that a lot. And her relationship um, of being a growing up a poor black woman in a suburb in Chicago that was dominated by rich white people and what that was like. Um, And also her parents both died when she was a teenager. So what it's like to be an orphan um, as an adult. So it seems like this is all heavy stuff. But Samantha Irby is known for being hilarious and funny and just crude in the best way. Um, So I'm going to give you just as my first elf, my first positive thing. uh, It's her funniness, her humor, and the way she writes. So this is a quote from the book so you can get a sense. This is from the first chapter where she writes a fake application to be on The Bachelorette. So she's talking about how you need to you know, you can be ideal, you can act like you're one way with people, but this is what she really wants in a relationship. I'm going to need you to love me on the bus, dude. And first thing in the morning, Also, when I'm drunk and refuse to shut up about getting McNuggets from the drive-thru, when I fall asleep in the middle of that movie you paid extra to see in IMAX, when I wear the flowered robe I got at Walmart and the sweatpants I made into sweatshorts to bed, when I'm blasting more and more by blood, sweat, and tears at 7 on a Sunday morning while cleaning the kitchen and effing up your mom's frittata recipe. 
So you get a sense, her voice is so strong. She has no holds barred. She tells you exactly all of her feelings, sometimes a bit too much. You you don't necessarily need to know a lot of, you know, the stuff that's going on in her intestines, Um, but you hear about it. Um, She's not shy. And she says it in a really funny way where she has excellent descriptors and then she'll punctuate it with like a lol what, which is funny. So that's my main elf. Um, I also found her to be relatable um, just because she talks, uh, she cuts straight to the punch and she just tells things like it is, you know, as simple as like, I don't want to go outside. Why would I want to go outside when I can be in bed and watch uh, Grey's Anatomy and come home immediately and tear off my bra and be in front of the TV within 20 minutes? And like, I I understand that. It's relatable. (laughs) I also really enjoyed, it's an interesting, if you're trying to read, like, for example, um, an LGBTQIA writer, she's interesting because it's she's bi but it's not about the fact that she's bi um it just talks about the differences in her different types of relationships and i found that really interesting those are all the positives my negatives my orcs um pretty simple i think i don't know if you guys have read essay collections like this but sometimes i think that because they were all published on a blog as separate individual pieces when they all get put together sometimes they're a little repetitive like she'll give the same yeah. context over and over and i kind of wish that it had been edited a little more she's pulling different things together and putting them in a collection versus i think sitting down and writing the essays i mean i think some of them were written for the book probably but it just feels like yeah, yeah i already know this fact about you um Yeah, I feel like that's hardly her fault, though. Sometimes it feels like with these collections, it's like the publisher. The publisher is just like, don't worry, just email us the blog and we'll publish it. And it's like, shouldn't that shouldn't you guys like hire an editor (laughs) to be like, cool, we know this or, you know, I definitely don't think it's her fault. I think this is suffering from um, being overhyped. So many of my friends were like, oh my gosh, you're going to love Samantha Irby. It's going to be the best thing you've ever read in your whole life. Five stars on Goodreads. Like It's like this many of your friends have read it and rated it five stars. And so it was really overhyped for me. So then when it was not five stars, I was like, oh no. To be fair, that might be on them not knowing that you have this podcast and that you don't throw out five stars willy-nilly. This is true. (laughs) The only other orc I can say, well, I wouldn't recommend this book like to your mom to people's moms. Because, you know, it gets pretty lewd. It gets pretty gross out. It's a lot of talk of sex and pooping. And that's a lot. So, you know, it's not for everybody. Um, And then this is like a Bailey critique that would not apply to most people, but it just applies to me, which is that I do not like in this book that she does not like her cat. (laughs) She's always talking about how she doesn't like her cat and she's the absolute worst and she's so annoying. She's always cleaning up after the cat and the cat's a nightmare. And I know that she loves the cat, but... I don't I don't like making fun of the cat. You make fun of Jackson <laughs> Wallace all the time. No, but I wouldn't in this way. It's, it's very harsh. <laughs> in a public forum. Uh, Bailey, I demand you now make fun of Wallace or Jax in a way. Wallace is a little bit fat, but I love him. And Jax is perfect in every way. <laughs> we have literally told Jax to shut up so many times. I know. I know. But she's just she's very mean to Helen, to Helen Keller, the cat. so so anyway so this took it was a four-star book and then that silly criticism took it to a three-star book (laughs) i know i know and you know what this is a podcast where i'm the co-host and that's what i say and so that's what it is three stars with that said i also read meaty which was her collection that came before and that one she was nice to helen she or at least she wasn't mean and so i give that one four stars i love this as a metric to use for future (laughs) ratings samantha irby you 
bet you're on notice <laughs> if you want that extra star. And I have to read the last one, which is called Wow, No Thank You. And who knows? Who knows how she's going to talk about cats in that one? So TBD. Yeah. Andrew, do you have any facts on Samantha Irby? <laughs> do I have facts on Samantha Irby? Yeah, sort of. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I do have some facts here. Um, would you like to hear them? Yeah, I guess. Yes, please. So what I'm going to do here is give you a quick bio of her um, and then go into a couple different interviews. Um, though, as Bailey has suggested in her review, since her work is autobiographical, the best way to get to know Samantha Irby is to read some of her work. Yeah. So know that. Because you're never meeting her in real life. Uh, yes. It's a media accusation. Uh, wait, wait, I have it. I have it. New Year, same trash? Yeah. <laughs> Samantha McIver Irby was born on February 13th, just missed Valentine's Day, 1980, and grew up in Evanston, Illinois. Go Northwestern. Her mother worked as a nurse, but as Irby discusses in her work, she developed multiple sclerosis and required care from a teenage Irby. Irby went on to attend Northern Illinois University, but dropped out following her mother's passing. I just wanted to interject that that was in Meaty, not in the one that I officially reviewed. But in the book Meaty, there's a chapter called My Mother, My Daughter, which talks all about that and was one of my favorite pieces. Mm. Yeah. After dropping out of college, she began writing a MySpace blog. Remember MySpace? <laughs> um in the late 2000s and started her still running blog bees gotta eat in 2009 beyond her writing she's hosted a number of live shows in chicago she had long running a bunch of different long writing like variety and, and literature shows and uh, covering a wide variety of themes some of which we can talk about in the podcast and some of which most of which we cannot which is a theme of a lot of my uh, research about smith therapy i couldn't <laughs> use a lot of her quotes yeah i was having a hard time reviewing it <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the Martin Amos quote that I pulled from the book is maybe the only three sentences in a row where there's not something disgusting. So, <laughs> same, same. We've had just had a, a nasty little week of reading, guys. <laughs> yeah. Her first book, Meaty, was initially published in uh, 2013, but it was republished in 2018 by her new publisher, Vintage, who has then gone on to publish all the rest of her books, um, which include New Year, Same Trash, which is actually just available as an ebook. Uh, we Are Never Meeting in Real Life, and Wow, No Thank You, which came out in 2020. She wrote an episode of for the first season of Shrill, um, that TV mm. show based on Lindy West's work, um, which was entitled Pool. And I don't know if anyone's watched Shrill, but that episode was written by our very own Samantha Irby. It was a good episode. It's when she goes to a pool party. So, Bailey, I, that reminds me, I was thinking, I haven't read this, but I have read Shrill by Lindy West and I know you have too. How does it compare? Because they're both, you know, collections of essays or short writings by, you know, women co like commenting on contemporary culture. Well, I don't know if Andrew has a fact about this, but I know from the acknowledgements in the book that Samantha Sam is friends with Lindy West and with Roxane Gay. So I think that it's fair to draw comparisons between them. I think Lindy West is more approachable, less less gross out. Um, and mm. Roxane Gay is, is more serious. So I think... She She's closer to Lindy West, but even grosser, <laughs> even more lewd, crude. Nice. Lewd, crude, and rude. Got it. Yep. With an attitude. Um, as Bailey mentioned, Irby is bisexual and married her wife, Kirsten Jennings, in 2016. Um, she currently lives in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Not Mavis after all. And that's the extent of the facts of, of her um, biography. I'm going to give you now some quotes. The first couple I have here come from an interview with NPR. Appropriately, this one is on moving to Kalamazoo, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> Irby says, well, I moved here because my wife already lived here and I was really resistant because I hate change. But once you see what it costs to live in a town like Kalamazoo, it was pretty easy to make the choice, especially since I'm a writer and you know that notoriously pays absolutely nothing. <laughs> so in order to keep writing my jokes that don't pay very much, it was pretty much a no brainer. Mm, makes sense. 
on describing herself as a high-functioning, depressed, and anxious person, despite being charming on air. You know, I can talk to you and be charming and have fun, and this is great. And then, like, I have to lie down, and I will be anxious about every dumb thing I've said, truly, until it airs. So it's negative self-talk and inertia that's easy to hide from other people. See, this is where I relate to her. Yeah, that's a very relatable emotion. Has you tried speaking in a podcast and editing it later? <laughs> I will say, I will tell you, Pedros, you don't know pure joy until you can edit something stupid that you said out of a podcast that you're going to publish. <laughs> Too true. It's 80% what our, what our editing is. <laughs> um, this one tickled me. The prompt was on when she'll stop writing. I mean, eventually there's going to be zero demand for my stuff. And the day that happens, that's it. I'm going to go bag groceries or work at the gas station or wherever will hire me. I'm very realistic about everything, having a shelf life, especially when you're a writer who writes about herself. And when that day comes, I will happily close up shop. Be like, we had a good run, essays. We're done. On to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. So, so she's a very fun interview. I had a, a lot of fun reading through um, her stuff. And sh- I didn't read the audiobook, but I hear that she narrates her own audiobook. So that could be fun, too. Um, a couple final quotes. This is actually from a different interview with the rumpus.net of which uh, Irby has been a past contributor but this is the rumpus asks I found so much comfort in your book this is specifically about wow no thank you mm. I found so much comfort in your book so many moments of recognition what does it feel like to have your stories be relatable Irby says it feels incredibly affirming because writing is such a solitary process well at least the way I do it it is at 2 a.m in a ratty sweatshirt listening to dad rock and I can feel <laughs> like I'm shouting into a void or maybe not even that Maybe it's more like, who cares about this? So it's a good feeling when somebody I've never met tells me they've read something I wrote and recognize themselves in it. Everyone likes to pretend that they're special, that despite this large planet we are coexisting on, that somehow they have a singular experience. But I think we're all working through a lot of the same universal S, and it's nice to make that connection. Yeah. Nice. And the last quote I will say, also from that Rumpus interview, uh, the Rumpus asks, so I have to start off by saying that I had your book out at a Starbucks and two women came up to me gushing about you. I met two of your fangirls in Boston. Is it weird to be recognized? Or <laughs> says, I don't feel like I really get recognized. Out of context, <laughs> I just look like a regular garden variety butthead. <laughs> I, I, this makes me love her. She sounds great. I, I mean, maybe try the audiobook and let us know how it is to read the audiobook. Although, other really fun fact, she might not have to worry about um, her running out of work because I was just really fast checking that she did write for that Shrill episode, but she also wrote for uh, Toucan Birdie. And she's going to be on Sex and the City. The she's, new one. And she's producing it, too. Oh. Oh. Or, and just like that. Because Samantha's out, and so this Samantha's in. Ah. Get it? So, okay, awesome. So, the first books in the Samantha Irby Herbra. Herbra. Get it? Herbiverse. Herbra. Ah. So, we're never meeting in real life. Three stars. Be nicer to cats. Meaty. Four stars. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love it. I love that you used that to send a di- such a direct message about one specific aspect of her writing. <laughs> it's it's what you can do when you have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, this this platform. What will you do with the mighty power of this platform? <laughs> do you know what I would say to a game designed by Andrew? Money. Wow. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Yeah. So you guys have asked so nicely. I'll give you a game. Yay. Yay. I think you're going to have fun with this one. It's one of my favorite kinds of games because it involves very little prep for me and it all falls on your so- shoulders to be creative. Ooh. Uh-oh. The name of the game this week is called First Impression Rose. Ooh. Oh. Bachelor. So I don't know how much Toby has watched The Bachelor or Bachelorette. Toby used to come over and watch it with us. Yeah. I think I've seen 1.5 seasons. There you go. 
Excellent. This is perfect because all you really need to know is that in the first episode of The Bachelor or Bachelorette, the Bachelor or Bachelorette stands at the entrance to the mansion that they're living in and each of the men or women comes in and has a chance to introduce themselves. Now, periodically, they do things very normally or they go insane like dressing (laughs) like a sloth or not leaving a box (laughs) or doing something entirely odd. Now, here's the challenge should you choose to accept it, which you will. (laughs) I want to know how you would, in an attempt to make the best first impression and subsequently get that first impression rose, how you would introduce yourself to some famous bachelor or bachelorettes. Am I me in this situation or can I pretend to be cooler than I am? You can be whatever and whoever you want to be. I want to be that guy on the season of The Bachelor that I saw who wouldn't stop eating meat and got into a bunch of fights. Mm -hmm. Um, Does Dylan get to play too? Dylan, I would love if he could play because I know Dylan has a deep love for The Bachelor and Bachelorette. Oh, (laughs) Just to get into the nitty gritty a little bit more, there are going to be three rounds. We have three different uh, bachelor slash bachelorettes. You will have different levels of familiarity with them. So just be prepared for that. That's okay. I want to hear how you'd introduce yourself to them. If you want to really get into the character, that's up to you. Or you can just tell me the big situational thing you're going to do. For example, not breaking character as a sloth for the entire first night. Gotcha. All right. So here it is. The host has set out The Bachelor and our first Bachelor's here. It's Martin Amos. <laughs> You're coming up <laughs> to Martin Amos. Ready? He's, he's ready to find some love, even though he's, he's still married. But in this situation, he's not. He wants to find some love. How are you going to impress Martin Amos and get that first impression rose? Okay. Okay. I'm ready. Here's what happens. The limo pulls up. A bunch of girls go out. Yeah. Like, who cares about them? Then I'm the last one. I come out. I'm dressed in a suit and a man's wig. And I say... Hello, I'm Martin Amos. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. And then I go inside. I love it. I love it. I love it. Bailey Bailey has put a very strong showing out into the first thing here. So I've got something. Okay. Uh, You know, he comes out and all the other women get out and then I get out and I'm dressed in a man's suit in a man's wig and I introduce myself and I say, I'm Kingsley Amos and I read your book Money and I love it. (laughs) Uh, I love where you're going with this except for the implied incestuousness. (laughs) We can just be good friends. Sometimes you just find a friend connection on The Bachelor. Sometimes you just marry your best friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Dylan. You got one for us? Uh, yeah, I'd come out of the car and I'd also be covered like head to toe with tattoos, including like the Joker one that says damaged on my forehead. And then I'll apologize for taking the this. one you actually have in real life. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. So I'd be me in this situation. <laughs> And then I'd go up to him, but then I'd apologize and just say my life is too much of a mess right now to uh, form a relationship. Uh, mm. You wouldn't understand. I'm sorry for taking out your time. And then I'd just go and hang out by the limo parking lot and smoke cigarettes, knowing that he'll be desperate to talk to me. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I love it. Oh, man. Really strong showing on this first round, y'all. I have to give it to Bailey yes. here because I, I I, just, I don't know. I, I, I think Toby yours was great, but I don't think it maybe would have existed quite the same if, if Bailey hadn't, you know, kicked down the door with that first one. You mean I can't win which with basically just a one-upping joke on <laughs> Bailey? You know what? I'll accept this, Rose. Well, okay. Bailey has the first point, but I can see this becoming a tie at the end of three rounds where you each win one because y'all are great competitors. Thank you. Mm-hmm. This may come as a shock, but our next Bachelor is a Bachelorette, (gasps) and it's Samantha Irby. What are you going to do? Okay. Well, then the limo would open up, but it wouldn't be me. It'd be a DoorDash delivery person um, with just like her favorite food, which would be... Well, it depends if her IBS is acting up or not. It'd be her favorite food and also some Tums. And then it would just be a note like, hey, if you want to kick it later, uh, here's my address, but no pressure. Oh, okay. 
Hey, nice. I like that. I like that invitation to, for no pressure. That's good. It's good. All right. So the limo opens up and there's there's like you can't see anybody. And then she has to come to the limo and I'm dressed as a cat that's like pooping in the side in like the limo. <laughs> <laughs> and she has to clean it up, but then she'll love me anyway. Little do you know, Toby, on this last season of The Bachelor, I was say. Ed, there was a guy dressed as a cat. But he sings? It was Did he poop in the limo? No, but she seemed only into him when he was wearing the cat costume. Just saying. Oh no. Then that's a winning strategy. There you go. Okay, these are both this these are two good uh two good gambits what you got bail i'm going to roll out of the limo wearing my um daytime pajamas and love it yeah um not showered having a big bowl of cereal like using one of those big mixing bowls of cereal um and i'm gonna come in and eat it and and say you're my lucky charm can i just say that this is an unfair advantage for bailey (laughs) yeah It's unfair for Bailey the fact that it's like Samantha, Irby, and her would be friends in real life. So she says, so I think. <laughs> That's fair. And yeah, you guys, you can't get around it. Bailey wins that round too. But to keep this game interesting, the final round one is going to be worth three points. So basically it's all or nothing. Hooray. And it comes down to this. Everyone's favorite character from a book from last episode, Northanger Abbey. Okay. John Thorpe. The weird guy who just loves his yes. <laughs> his horse driving carriage. Okay. He's the bachelor. He's finally got what he wants. He's gonna find love. Is he gonna get some money out of it too? He wants it. Let's see what we got here. Okay. Uh, I guess Toby oh goes first. Okay. The limo pulls up and the door opens and yet again it is empty. And you know I come flying down the driveway in just the most tricked out carriage. <laughs> and uh, I'm wearing a very revealing clothing. You know, I think he's a pretty base guy. I think he wants some eye candy. So I've just got a tricked out carriage. I've got some very muscular horses. And I'm just going to, I'm not even going to say hi. I'm just going to give him one of those like, like, you know, the handshake in the action movie where they grab each other's forearms. Mm-hmm. I'm going to grab his forearm and swing him into the carriage with me and just ride off. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, so you know how Bailey really knocked it out of the park on the Martin Amos one? Y'all are in danger of falling behind Uh-oh. because that's a great one from Toby here. What you got? All right. Well, I also I mean, you've got to. I also pull up in a carriage with horses, not as tricked out as Ooh. Toby, but I, the horses aren't as muscular as Toby's not just as to muscular, be clear. No. Okay. Um, I open the door, walk out and say, John, we got to go. Remember, we have a date scheduled. I'm here with my sister <laughs> and we already have a double date. Let's get going. Remember, we're getting married. And then he has to go because he's so confused. And he's like, well, somebody else was going to come see me today, but I guess I have to go with you. And then he comes with me and feels guilty about it. Here's my question, Belle. Do you then lie about having seen somebody else that he was supposed to meet. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a hilarious part in the book. They're like, oh yeah, we saw that guy you're supposed to meet and he seems fine with it. You should come with me. <laughs> All right, that's strong too. That's strong too. All right. And for someone that hasn't read the book, but has read the Wikipedia summary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to be fair, this should be very easy because it's Jane Austen time. So I just go and uh, I come out, it'd be two steps. So I'd come out of the limo first and then just be... Um, his mom what's his mom's name just miss thorpe sure yeah i'll just be miss thorpe and explain that uh he has arranged marriage with uh the next suitor and then i'll just pop out of the carriage just be plain old me because she has to do he has to do it i don't know that you understand the plots of jane austen novels where people <laughs> actually choose who they marry quite a bit yeah they you have to court each other dylan <laughs> Oh, this is tough. All right. I'm going to I'm going to go back on my word and it hurts to do it, but 
I'm going to award Toby two points for that. <gasps> oh. And I'm going to award Bailey one. Yes. So what? Bailey takes the win. It's only fair for the overall performance, but gosh darn it, Toby, that was a good answer for the last one. It's <laughs> all right. Me me, and John are just going to ride off into the into the sunset, still gripping each other's forearms. <laughs> I just love that you didn't you nod to him and he knows right away, oh, I got to get in this chariot and go away. It's so fly. He can't pass it up. I'm in a very weird thruple with Samantha Irby and Martin Amos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they'll get along great. All right. Thanks for playing, y'all. I hope you had fun with that. I, I always like those games, which lets you guys get a little bit creative. That was very yeah, fun. Yeah, that's a fun one. Yeah. Good job. This is what I get for not reading the, uh, oh man, do I have to read Persuasion now? Maybe. I never know when it's going to come back and bite me. Well, speaking of what books are coming up next on the podcast, now is Dylan's time to shine. It is time for Dylan to choose books at random from our shelves to read next. It is time for The Choosing. The Choosing. The Choosing. The Choosing. Well, Toby, it's a good thing that you shortened your list because this next one should Uh pretty much cover everything. Because you have number eight, The Book of Ultimate Truths by Robert Rankin. Oh, yes. I'm really excited about this one. This was, I have a physical copy of this book. It was given to me by um, my friend and my wife's good friend, Sabine. And I encourage you, Pejos, to go ahead and Google the cover because it's like clown who has like a silver face and he's holding a fish. Only it's one of those 90s covers where the clown is like a photo of a real clown superimposed on a weird background. Anyway, I'm excited to read it. As far as I understand it, Robert Rankin is like a kind of not as well known Terry Pratchett, but weirder by far. All right, cool. Okay. I'm just jazzed that you're going to know all the ultimate truths. But yeah, <laughs> me too. And then for the choosing, this is actually tricky because the random number generator did choose this one. But in this case, the random number generator is my child. Basically, I just picked up Maggie and showed her the bookcase and then whatever book she grabbed was going to be the next one. Mm. You have number whatever Maggie decided. I want to be where the normal people are by Rachel Bloom. (laughs) Maggie likes hardcover books with pretty colors. I'm excited. I mean, this is another you know, memoir by a famous woman who's probably going to talk about, you know, personal stuff. And I'm excited. Look, I'm going to keep giving you books of essays until you give one five stars. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so in two weeks, in our next episode, Andrew is going to be reading Persuasion by Jane Austen. I'm also going to read that with you, Andrew. Um, And then I'll cover I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are by Rachel Bloom. Sweet. I love it. Yay. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the To Read List podcast and on Instagram at the To Read List podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, um, you know, we are a clean podcast, but I'm pretty sure you can say whatever you want on iTunes. So go ahead and use all of your profanities and rate us five stars with a real disgusting review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher of choice. And if you're looking for love and think you could be the person for your next Bachelor or Bachelorette, (laughs) please recommend our podcast to everyone you know. Word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners, and it really does help us grow our audience. They haven't had a podcaster on The Bachelorette yet, but they should. It's coming. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books.